This episode of New Politics was released on the 7th of October, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the Voice to Parliament referendum is now open for voting and the fear and division from the No campaign continues. Is the last Liberal Party government in Australia just about to collapse? The report from the Disability Royal Commission, strike action at the supermarket, and the problems left behind in the immigration system by the previous government. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Speaker of the US House of Representatives. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Voting for the Voice to Parliament referendum has opened up and there's just one more week to go before the final date and that's October the 14th. And there's been the usual fear, division and misinformation from the No campaign and from the Liberal Party and unfortunately this will continue up until 6pm on the date of the referendum and that's going to be a long, long time to put up the eyesore and the earsore of the No campaign and there has been some good news for the Yes campaign with recent opinion polls suggesting that there has been a slight swing back for the Yes vote. The No campaign is still ahead in these opinion polls but real votes are now being lodged in this referendum and there's still another week to go and this is quite different to a general election. There's just one ballot box on the ballot paper and it's either a Yes or a No. And overall, this should have been a very straightforward process. But when you've got that combination of political opportunism, a very right-wing Liberal Party, and a leader who's got nothing to offer but feels that he's got nothing to lose, well, it just ends up being a terrible mix. Both campaigns have been awful. The Yes campaign has been disastrous. The No campaign has been catastrophic. And if No gets up, it will say a lot about Australia that a lot of us don't really want to hear. I am hearing in conversations more recently, the lies of the No campaign are being repeated as fact. And when you try and explain that it's not true, uh, they say, oh, where did you get that information from? You know, how do we know it's not the Yes campaign that is lying? And I try and give them the facts. And I'm told, of course, they're going to say that. It's all fake news. So trying to explain that Indigenous people are actually some of the most disadvantaged in the Western world. Oh, no, they're not. They're really privileged. ATSIC was completely corrupt. Aboriginal Affairs spends $430 billion a year. None of that's true. I'm hoping that common sense and empathy will prevail and that people stop listening. But I don't think that the situation is hopeless. I've seen signs of surrender from both sides. Yes, seems to have given up in many ways, but no also seems to have given up and is getting more and more desperate. I do think Nathan Cleary coming out in favour will swing a few wavering voters, but only in a couple of states. I don't know that there's many in, say, South Australia who cares what a rugby league player thinks, one way or the other. Oh, well, you are right. There are more people coming out in support of the Yes campaign. And last weekend, we did have the Festival of the Boot and Collingwood won the grand final in the AFL and good old Collingwood forever and the Penrith Panthers now I don't know very much about rugby league but I did watch the game and had to be pointed to the right screen so I knew what was going on and which game I should be watching and as you mentioned Nathan Cleary the captain of the Penrith Panthers and the winner of the men's premiership he posted a video about his support for the yes campaign no voice no choice come on Australia vote yes So there's more people of goodwill coming out to support the voice to Parliament, and I think that's good news. But of course, there's going to be more fear, more division and confusion promoted by the No campaign and the Liberal Party. Here's Dan Tehan being schooled by Noel Pearson on the ABC's Q&A program. But to get it so, through, the structure, you would have a lot of power in the, in the no, Senate. Well, I mean, you're having a power in the Senate ultimately if you, if you have the, <coughs> the numbers in the Senate. Now, we don't have the numbers in the Senate. And the no, government... With, with the government, the, you would. The, well, with the government, <laughs> and if the government practised true bipartisanship... So w- w- when they set up the committee, would they have equal numbers of Liberal and Labor, Labor on the committee? Dan, no, they wouldn't. So I it's think sort you're of... missing the point, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Am I not? 
this is what how I'm missing the point. This now. is what the provision says. Yeah. The Parliament shall have the power to make laws. The Parliament shall have the power to make laws. It's like that social welfare legislation, right? That was passed by the Australian people. All of the legislation that was generated under that provision was not known at the time the referendum passed. We passed rafts of social welfare legislation under that power in the many decades since then. We're just talking about a constitutional power as opposed to the legislation. The legislation is your responsibility as a parliamentarian and Mullinder's responsibility as a parliamentarian to create the legislation after the referendum is secured. And not only that, in five years' time, you can change it. You have a full power to repeal it and replace it. That is the role of the parliament. Parliament's responsible for the details. And that detail is in legislation that you guys pass. So, and so you can propose a model today and say there's going to be 24 members, but you have a complete ability in three years' time to reduce it to 18 or increase it to 32. You know, those, those details can always change subject to the Parliament's actions in creating laws. You're conflating the creation of legislation with the adoption of a constitutional referendum. No. There's also a few more red herrings being pushed forward by Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine, and they've made a call for more audits of funding of Indigenous programs and pushing other conspiracies out there as well. And just when you think that they can't go on with this anymore, they reach down into that bucket of muck and throw some more muck around and it doesn't have to be true or not they just make it up and then when you think surely there can't be any more division the color purple crops up and that's where the Australian Electoral Commission has told the yes campaign that they can't use purple because it's too close to the branding color of the Electoral Commission and this fed into other news corporation conspiracies that the yes campaign is cheating and trying to trick everyone and if it's not one thing it's something else. If one claim is refuted, then the no campaign moves on to another issue, the colour purple or a core flute in the wrong spot at a polling booth or audits of funding or something else that no one has ever thought of in the history of humankind. So it's just so over the top. It's so belligerent. It's so crazy. And it's just so infuriating. And all of this has got absolutely nothing to do with the issues from the voice of parliament either. The AEC would probably argue, well, we learnt from our mistake in 2019 and it's just unfortunate that it happens to be the other side now. And there's probably at least some merit to that, I'm, I'm guessing. But it doesn't look good. I think the no campaign, Peter Dutton, I think by saying that there should be Indigenous recognition in the Constitution, to me that's him saying the no case is hopeless because he'd, he'd been suggesting that we didn't need Indigenous recognition, that the Constitution isn't a racial document. In fact, it's, it is a racial document. The first thing the constitution allowed the parliament to do was pass the White Australia Act, which stayed in, in effect for 72 years. And by not acknowledging, as every other colonised nation in the world has done, it, it's our Indigenous past. The constitution is lacking. I have in the past written in favour of the constitution with the caveat that we needed Indigenous recognition. I still think it's a fairly useful document, but it does need to be more Modernized. Dan Tehan, of course, has never come across as the uh, most intellectually sharp of the parliament. He may well be, but his television performances are usually woefully abysmal. Occasionally, they reach the level of embarrassing. As a local member, he's not terribly efficient and really shouldn't be in public life. And why they keep wheeling him out, if he's absolutely the best performer they have, they really have to sit down and think about what it is they're doing and why they're not attracting more appropriate people. It was, as we'd expect from a T-hand performance, not terribly smart, not terribly bright, not terribly thoughtful, not terribly insightful, but pretty terrible. And the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, he's got his own batch of red herrings and total lies as well. And I think the entire ocean has been drained of these red herrings. They're all gone. There's none left in the world. And he's putting mud in the waters as well, suggesting that Indigenous people need to be recognised, as you mentioned before, David, but also adding 
a caveat that migrants need to be recognised as well. And this is the same tactic that Scott Morrison used to use. Oh, yes, Indigenous people need support, but what about all of these other people too? So it's trying to sound genuine, but also downplaying one group of people and creating the division by talking about other people who might be deserving as well. And now Peter Dutton is suggesting that Alan Joyce had a veto on the referendum question, which is a complete lie, but this is all magnified by the mainstream media. And no journalist decided to sit down and think, well, how on earth would Alan Joyce be able to veto the words of the referendum question? And if he was able to do that, well, why would he actually do this? And we've said this many times before, David, just because a political leader says something, you don't have to report it. And if you are going to report it, we'll check it and make sure that it's actually true. That's the role of the journalist. That's the role of journalism. And if there's any mainstream journalist out there that wants a refresher course on the ethics of journalism, well, David, you and I will provide a short course to them free of charge. And, you know, we'll also prepare the PowerPoint presentation. We'll do it as a Zoom call if necessary. And this is how the No campaign has been able to gain so much traction by using the media in such a way and they just know that because of the low standards of journalism in Australia whatever they say will end up being uncritically reported and I think that's been a big problem in this referendum campaign. I think one of the missteps of the Yes campaign was using Alan Joyce's endorsement. Given especially he wasn't terribly popular before it came out as to why he shouldn't be terribly popular and before he essentially left the country in a hurry and shortened his notice. But certainly saying that he had final say. Who said this? Where's the evidence? Where's the document which has Alan Joyce's signature on it? Where's the phone call records that said... And why would Qantas, of all the corporations in Australia, why would Qantas want final say if it was a mining firm? Although, again, I don't think Twiggy Forrest or Gina Reinhardt or anyone from Rio Tinto, as much as they would love to, had final say or had any say. It's like the Uluru Statement of the Heart. It's really 26 pages. No, it's not. It's one page. The Uluru Statement of the Heart, page one of one, there it is. A nicely composed, genuine statement of reconciliation. So there is still a week to go, and I'm just fearing the worst in this final week. But for all of the time that this campaign has been going on, I can't help stop thinking that the Prime Minister has failed to learn from the mistakes of the Republic referendum in 1999. And, and there's a lot of similarities with the Republic referendum. First of all, on election night in 1998, John Howard promised that there would be a referendum on the Republic. In 2022, on election night, Anthony Albanese promised that there would be a vote on the voice to Parliament. And the key difference here is that John Howard never actually wanted to have a Republic. Anthony Albanese does want to have a voice to Parliament. But there was also a lot of fear and confusion during the Republic debate, and there was a failure to change the campaign when the circumstances changed. And in the 1999 Republic referendum, polls showed that 80% of the electorate wanted to have a direct election of the president. But the Yes campaign led by Malcolm Turnbull, they resisted that and wanted the president to be elected by the parliament. So something that would have gained popular support and in my opinion, probably would have won the Republic referendum, was resisted. And with the voice of Parliament, and this is all in hindsight now because it's just simply too late, but there have been suggestions from our audience that it would have been better to have a two-step process. The first referendum to apply recognition, legislate the voice of Parliament so that the electorate could see how it operates and then hold a second referendum after several years to place it into the constitution. But we can see that it doesn't really matter what it is. The Liberal Party will try to destroy any proposal at all. If it was simply a referendum on First Nations recognition, well, they'd work out a way of destroying that. If the voice of Parliament was legislated first, well, they'd work out a way of destroying that as well. And it's just that if the Liberal Party is not in government, they'll work out a way of damaging the chances of a Labor government doing anything at all, even if it is in the long-term political interests of the Liberal Party and the Conservative side of politics. And I'm very sure that even if the Liberal Party had initially said, yes, they will support the voice of Parliament, they would have acted in the same way that they're behaving now. Probably less vile and less divisive, but they still would have got Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine to do all of their dirty work because that's just who they are. And I don't know what the solution is. And 
I might be sounding a little bit defeatist about this at the moment. I'm still going to go out next weekend and hand out leaflets, and I'm still hopeful that there will be a yes vote on October the 14th. And just like an election campaign, anything can happen in the final week. And we've been saying this for some time, that if the yes campaign wins, well, Dutton obviously loses, but if the no campaign wins, Dutton also loses. And that doesn't really give me any satisfaction, but if the no campaign wins next week, I think the entire country loses, and that's what the biggest issue is. One of the things that demonstrates to people that Peter Dutton isn't really a great candidate is that he went directly to no. Had he said, look, we're going to support this because it's the right thing to do, but we are going to make sure that when the process is set up in the legislation, it is done properly. We'll make sure that the things that you might worry about, such as the wrong people getting in and it's not representative enough, we will make sure that it is set up properly and we will hold the government to account and when we get into office, we will improve it. That would have, I think, helped him last a bit longer. If yes gets up, he's finished. If no gets up, he's seen as a lying racist wrecker. Whether he is or not is immaterial, and I'm not necessarily claiming he's any of those things. But in politics, it's not what is, it's what is seen to be. So I think he's shot himself in the foot to get this victory that is really the complete definition of a Pyrrhic victory. He can't win anything from here. They'll talk about a a new energised Peter Dutton, but we know that's not the case. That will last two weeks and then his own unfitness for office will become apparent again and he'll be rolled, probably in January at this point, regardless of the result of the referendum. Small-minded tactics rarely do well in politics over the long term. You have to have a bit of vision about you. Even John Howard could talk about his vision for Australia, that it was a nasty, small-minded, awful vision is beside the point. He could transcend his own small pettiness and make it seem that to a lot of voters that he had a a direction and a vision for Australia in the way that the last few leaders of the Liberal Party haven't been able to do. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. Find out like you're searching for the best brunch spot near your house. I've never been afraid to say it loud. I never swore religious to the crown. We just want to get some advice in. Now we got the other side singing with devices. Like us as a sidekick, see it like a sidekick. Tracking on the lies, someone's gonna need a Heimlich. About time they listen to my people. Yes! Dutton wants to hit us with the sequel. Does every black fella love the Phantom? And the last Liberal government in Australia is facing a lot of problems at the moment. It was on the verge of collapse when the Attorney-General, Elise Archer, said that she would resign from Parliament, but then did a backflip and decided to remain in Parliament. And then the Premier of Tasmania said that he would call an early election if she didn't actually leave Parliament. And there were allegations of bullying and workplace harassment against Elise Archer, and that's why she was asked to quit from the Cabinet. But this escalated very, very quickly to the point where the Tasmania government almost collapsed. And it's been on the verge of collapsing for some time, ever since Peter Gutwine resigned in early 2022. There are several Liberal Party MPs who resigned to become independents, and this mayhem has been terrible for democracy and for good governance in Tasmania. And the next election in Tasmania isn't due until mid-2025, but it might be the beginning of the end of the last Liberal Party government in the country. Having been harsh on the Liberal Party, I think we should acknowledge that he's actually doing the right thing in in terms of procedure. If you're not sure that you can maintain supply, you call an election and and let the voting public sort of 
out. Other prime ministers and leaders of the opposition whom I might mention would have tried to brazen it out and created more chaos. So uh, I think it is worth acknowledging that there are liberal leaders or a liberal leader who is prepared to, at least in this case, follow correct parliamentary protocol and precedent. And for the sake of Tasmanian stability, I hope it can be sorted out. It'll be interesting to see if they can win an election. If they win an election, it's a shot in the arm for the Liberal Party. I imagine the Victorian Liberal Party are looking at it with uh, great interest. Uh, The Queensland Liberal Party are looking at it with great interest. The Western Australian Liberal Party would be looking at it with great interest, but they don't really exist. For New South Wales, who is in a slightly, slightly better state than the others, they'd be looking at it with great interest. But it's unlikely, given that it hasn't been a terribly good government, much better than anything Victoria or Queensland could have offered or Western Australia could have offered, but it's unlikely they're going to win, which will mean that Australia will have wall-to-wall Labor governments, both in state and federal. But Tasmania does have quite a few political problems at the moment. It's probably a sign of weak leadership from the Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe. And the other issue is that there's not that many MPs to choose from. The entire parliament of Tasmania has only got 40 members, and that's both houses, and the party room for the Liberal Party is currently 14. So that means that if you have a falling out or political differences with key members of cabinet, well, there's just not many other people to choose from. The talent pool is just very, very, very small. And the current lower house has got 25 MPs, and that will increase to 35 MPs at the next election. And that current number of 25 was instigated in 1998, primarily to stop the Tasmania Greens from gaining control of Parliament. That was 25 years ago, and I think that was a foolish decision. But with such small numbers, it's almost like a game of musical chairs. It shows, and it's a lesson that they keep learning in politics, that short-term gain may not be the best and will come back to bite you down the track. Even if it is 25 years later? Yeah, New South Wales and the upper house reforms, and this is 40 years ago, Neville Rand brought in a couple of things that down the track basically has gave us um, Fred Nile and Mark Latham and David Leon Helm and all of those far right wing lunatics who are completely unrepresentative. There are dozens of other examples in all state parliaments, by the way, and in the federal parliament too. Things that get you one up on your opponent temporarily will always come back to bite you. And we're seeing this now. It's unusual to hear calls for more government. (laughs) But in this case, Tasmania is woefully underrepresented and it's created leadership issues. So this is mayhem in Tasmania, but there are ramifications for the Federal Liberal Party and you touched on some of these issues before. But this is the last Liberal Party government in Australia. And I don't want to sound too dramatic, but it could also be the last Liberal Party government ever. And the last time that there was no Liberal federal, state or territory government in Australia was in 2008. And there were predictions that the Liberal Party was finished and they came back to government in Western Australia in 2008, Victoria 2010, and then in New South Wales 2011, and then finally back into federal government in 2013. So you can never write off any political party. But in 2023, it just all seems quite different. There's a lot of demographic changes where there's less support for the two main parties, there's more independence, and then there's the Teal independents who have taken Liberal Party seats. And the next realistic chance for a Liberal state government is in Queensland in October 2024. And there is a reasonable chance there. And there's still a little bit of a chance in the Northern Territory in 2024. But aside from this, I can't see them winning any election anywhere for the foreseeable future. And if you've got this mayhem in your last remaining state government, well, that's not a good sign for the Liberal Party anywhere. And there are other factors going on as well. The electorate of Australia is changing and changing quite dramatically and quite quickly as well. And the mainstream party that harnesses that change the best is the party that's going to have political success in the future. And I just can't see that being the Liberal Party in its current state. And this really takes us back to 1943, where the Liberal Party, well, then they were the United Australia Party, were in dire straits. Robert Menzies had been a failed Prime Minister in uh, 39 uh, to 40, lost the confidence of the House, 
and was forced forced under the back bench. Oh, the UAP was also seen as being way too close to business, way too close to big money, and allegations of corruption and impropriety abounded. Menzies got together with a group of others and basically launched a new party called the Liberal Party, which launched in 44, was ran its first election in 46, which it lost to the Chifley government, but then in 49 won and then stayed in power then for 23 years. But what I see happening here is very similar to what was happening in 1942-43, a party in complete and total disarray, having to radically reform its structure and rethink who got pre-selection. And it must be said, the Menzies cabinet in 1949 was one of the very best first-term cabinets we had in terms of its ability and its intellectual power and its basic competence. And all of that is a very long way of saying that the Liberal Party actually needs to evolve or die. It's out of touch with uh, the voters. It's too close to big business interests. There's corruption. There's there's a, a lack of understanding of the issues of the types of voters it needs to attract. I don't even think it knows what voters it attracts, really. Uh, and I think that's, that's a problem. They're just happy to keep being agents of chaos rather than do any real hard policy work work based on deeply thought through political philosophy. And if the Liberal Party disappears, well, that's not a case where conservative voters disappear. They'll always have to vote for someone. And it's not like they'll start voting for the Labor Party or left of centre political party. So there's always a need for conservative political parties to be out there. But they just have to harness the change that's happening within the Australian political and electoral system as well. And at the moment, they're just not doing that. It's almost like they're happy to espouse this right wing conservative issues. And we've seen that in the voice of parliament. We've seen that in quite a few areas over the past nine or ten years and it's just that they do fundamentally have to change if they do want to achieve political success in the future now it could still be the liberal party they can still use that same name and they more than likely will but they have to change the characters within the party itself and i think that's going to be the biggest challenge for them Purging a party is never pleasant, it's never easy, it's never really desirable. And it takes a very long time as well. It takes a very long time, and when it's necessary, it's just got to be done. Sometimes the unpleasant work needs to be done. I will say I don't think the Labor Party is far behind in terms of its need of massive reform, but the Liberal Party seems to be in more need of it at the moment. And yeah, as you said, and this is as it should be in a democracy, non-Labor voters need to be able to go somewhere. We want that debate. We want to make sure that people feel or are represented in Parliament. Those of us who don't vote that way may struggle to, to understand why a party that can be so wrong keeps getting legs but we haven't walked in the shoes of our opponents and colleagues and friends and we shouldn't judge too hard just keep arguing and keep discussing and keep the the debate open to show the rightness of the cause you believe in and that's true of everyone and moderate liberals moderate labor moderate But Australia is essentially a centrist country. You need parties that at least point that way, and then you can steer them to your more uh, definite ends, shall we say. And yeah, the current Liberal Party is not doing that. It's trying to steer people to the far right, and it may have minor success in this, but ultimately it will fail because the Australian populace isn't far right, it isn't far left. It's really centres with a few, I want to use fringe in the, the proper sense of the term fringe, people on the edge. I don't necessarily mean that everyone who is on the fringe is a lunatic, although some of the fringes are fairly out there. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can contribute and support new politics on Substack and Patreon. And 
there's always so many things going on in federal politics and there was a Royal Commission report that was released and that was the Disability Royal Commission and this one's been going on for a long time. It's been a long time coming. It was first commissioned in April 2019 and that was in response to the widespread reports of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability and the report made a wide range of recommendations on how to improve laws policies, structures and practices to ensure a more inclusive and just society. And the report didn't have as much media coverage as the recent RoboDebt Royal Commission, but it is just as important, if not more. Here's the Minister for Government Services, Bill Shorten. We understand that this nation can and should do better. But as much as some of this report makes harrowing reading, and as much as there may be some in the disability sector who say we need more done more quickly, I do see this as a moment of national unity. I do see this as a moment where we can paint the horizon for people with disability in Australia. And I can promise that with Labor in government, nothing less than the fair go for all Australians, which should extend to people with disability, nothing less than that is acceptable. And that's what we'll work every day with my colleague and I. And one of the recommendations of this Royal Commission report is to introduce a Disability Rights Act. And here's Australian Green Senator Jordan Steele-John outlining why this is so important. I think what the disability community need to see from a Disability uh, Rights Act is a comprehensive piece of legislation uh, aimed at upholding our rights as articulated under the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Disabled People in every setting and context in which we exist. It needs to be comprehensive, covering public and private services, um, and it needs to form the basis then for a disability commission, uh, which will enable us to uh, take complaints um, around ableism, around segregation, around abuse to that commission and have those complaints investigated and consequences uh, enforced. Over the last four or five years, disabled people have continued to experience violence and abuse and we have at least had the recourse of taking those experiences to a national royal commission. That national mechanism uh, for complaints um, and for redress needs to continue enabled by this act. Australia likes to think of itself as a very inclusive and just society, and it's not showing too much of that in the voice to parliament debate, but these are the things that it needs to take on and take on very seriously, and it's something that there should be bipartisan support on as well. It's really distressing. We've had a system that has kicked into our most vulnerable, most needy and most delicate members of society. It's absolutely disgusting, some of the things that came out in the report. I haven't read all the report yet. I've just flicked through bits and seen some media summaries. It's really upsetting that people who have needs to be able to function as best as they can in a society are being kicked into. I think it is to Bill Shorten's credit that he has basically accepted the findings of the report. We'll see how much he He's able to put through 220 recommendations is, is a lot, and it may extend past Bill Shorten's tenure as minister, and I'm not sure he'll get through all the recommendations. And it shouldn't have come to this. The prior minister, a man who is really trying hard to demonstrate to us that he is empathetic, non-racist, non-ableist, a decent guy, and for every piece of press that comes out that suggests he is, you get this, you get all kinds of other things. Dutton really should have resigned as opposition leader and from parliament when this was released. And it's possible that he didn't because there is actually no one to replace him. But really, it's gone beyond any level of acceptability. And at some point, he has to realise that his position is untenable. Well, this Royal Commission, it was commissioned by the former coalition government. And the report does make for very difficult reading, as you referred to before, David. But that's the nature of Royal Commissions. You know, generally, they shine a light on difficult issues within the community and provide direction for how government can make things better. And it had four years of hearing evidence from witnesses, and it's a very comprehensive report. 
222 recommendations within the report, but it will need ongoing support from ministers and advocates within the political system. Bill Shorten as the Government Services Minister, Amanda Rishworth as the Social Services Minister, and Jordan Siljohn, and they have to lead the way and create the groundswell of cross-party support within the political system to make these changes. And it's probably not a time to be petty with such an important report, but I was actually quite disappointed with the response from the opposition, remembering that it was the Liberal National Government that commissioned this Royal Commission in 2019. But the Shadow Minister, Michael Sukkar, he has responded politically to all of this and suggesting that they will carefully scrutinise the government's actions and expect the government will respond in a timely manner, and then went on to say that it was actually the coalition that funded the Royal Commission and allocated $527 million towards the commission. And I'm not expecting the opposition of the day to turn around and commend the government on anything, but at least they could put aside politics just for one moment. They don't have to mention the government or the ministers. They could just announce that this is a good and common sense response for people with disabilities and it's very long overdue and considering that the commission continued for three of its four years under a coalition government and maybe they could point out that it's a whole government approach they could do something like celebrate the achievements of people with disability maybe even bring in dylan alcock australian of the year into a media conference or something like that but they just see this as another political opportunity and they won't say anything good about it and probably never will no, given that it's Michael Sukar, and hello to our friends at Shady Sukar, do we need to say any more about the quality of opposition that we're going to get in this? I think even maybe Peter Dutton put his hands in his head when he realised who the shadow minister who'd have to cover this stuff would be. Instead of trying a little bit of, we started this, okay, sure, take that credit. And we're glad to see that there are practical things and we want to support the department, the minister and the government in making sure this is right so it never happens again. Of course, it might be a bit rich coming from them. And it goes back to the appropriateness of people that the Liberal Party have have in their senior roles. It's yeah, just so upsetting. I hope that I'm wrong in that it'll take as long as it will to get all those recommendations into place. I hope that it can be done much, much, much quicker. I think with Bill Shorten, we have a good chance. He, I think he's genuinely passionate about proper services to disabled people, to NDIS recipients. I, I wish we had better opposition who could work constructively, but we don't. And this isn't an issue directly about the federal government, but the staff at Coles and Woolworths are holding a work strike about poverty wages, and it's being organised by the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union on behalf of these workers. And these workers are being paid between $12 and $26 per hour, and they are campaigning for a living wage of $29 per hour, and also to receive better protections against workplace bullying, workplace harassment and assaults from the public, and job security. And just to put all of this in context, Coles made a profit of $1.1 billion in the most recent financial year, and Woolworths made a profit of $1.62 billion. And these profits are made on the back of worker exploitation and low-paid staff. And people will be inconvenienced by this, but that's what the point of the strike action is. And in the context of fair pay for fair work, Coles and Woolworths just need to pay up. Coles and Woolworths are, uh, you don't see this in many working capitalist structures where you have essentially two competitors working with each other to make sure that nobody else can get a look in. Aldi works, IGA just works, although IGA uh, had to outlast Franklin's and a whole bunch of other independent supermarkets. And we shouldn't really be talking about independent supermarkets. There should just be supermarkets. In fact, I can't stand supermarkets. I'd rather just have a central shopping area. But we live in a new world. The price fixing is incredible. The profits they're making for necessities, milk and bread and food and cleaning products and and just things that we need. The price gouging is eye-watering. And then I refuse to use the self-checkouts. I see that as scab labor. I would rather wait in a line and and be served by someone with a job being paid an appropriate living wage than scan my own stuff. And of course, they've 
they've had to put in shoplifting went through the roof. They're still making a profit. And they also worked out that a lot of the shoplifting wasn't deliberate. It was just people unable to use the machines properly because they're buggy and they don't work. So they've now got extra cameras. I don't know what the camera is going to do when it catches you stealing something. But, you know, maybe they've got some kind of weapon in them. This does bring up the general issue of stagnant wages and corporate power as well. And there's also inflation and cost of living issues within the community. And generally, during these times, Coles and Woolworths do very, very well. And they did make those profits in the previous year. But in the year before that, they also made over a billion dollars in profit each and close to that in the preceding year. And people still need to eat. And during the lockdown periods in the earlier parts of the pandemic, Coles and Woolworths were one of the few businesses that were open for all of these times. And this is part of what being a good corporate citizen is all about. It's not just about making those fancy advertisements, proclaiming about how well sourced and inspected the food is, which I find hard to believe. That's all spin and marketing. It's all about how well you look after your staff. And at the moment, Coles and Woolworths are not looking after their staff. And You mentioned those surveillance cameras that they've now got in their checkout systems. They're very happy to spend well over $200 million installing these security cameras and checkout surveillance to stop people stealing carrots or whatever they're stealing. And they'd much be better off just paying their staff a higher salary and offering better working conditions. And that's where they should be redirecting their super profits. Yeah, good companies invest in staff, customer service, product, and all of that together generally means that their shareholders are looked after. Coles and Woolworths and a lot of Australian companies look after their shareholders first. And we're seeing, I think, the collapse of this model. The last 20 or so years, it's probably been a bit more than that, but it's been obvious in the last 20 or so years of corporate rating, I think, is coming to an end. I think we're going to start to see CEO wages drop down significantly, 90% and 80%. I think we're going to see dividends be less generous, shall we say, but better investment because there'll be a consistent size over the long term rather than big, 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 nothing, 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 nothing. I think we'll find director's fees going down significantly because I think there's a general sense in the public that when you're paying $6 for two litres of milk, when it should really be 5 or even $4, um, but they're just gouging that in, I think people aren't seeing the value. Now, you can go to Aldi, you can go to IGA, but Coles and Woolworths have managed to snaffle some of the more convenient real estate. So it starts to become incumbent on them to act responsibly, act less greedily, or be forced out of business. And these things can happen surprisingly quickly. The federal government also announced their findings from the review of the temporary visa system, which has revealed that there's a lot of flaws within the system and corrupt activity, primarily by unregistered and corrupt migration agents and unscrupulous employers. And this has led to an abuse of these people on temporary visas, including human trafficking, slavery, sex trade, drug trade. And people might assume that slavery is a practice from yesteryear, but it is a serious problem. And These sorts of things just shouldn't be happening in Australia. They shouldn't be happening anywhere in the world. And it's the result of cutbacks in the Department of Home Affairs, less staff to police these issues and a complete lack of regulation. And no prizes for guessing who the Minister for Home Affairs was during this time. All of this snowballed. Peter Dutton, who once again, after revealing his incompetence as health minister and as immigration minister and as defence minister, has shown to be incompetent as the Home Affairs Minister. And you'd expect the government to shout this out as much as possible. They'll have to sort out the problems first, of course, but they'll be keen to let everyone know that Peter Dutton was the one who was responsible for all of this. And again, it goes back to the disastrous administration of the cabinet of the last previous governments. Uh, Peter Dutton should have resigned. And I think this is another reason for him to resign. No wonder they're so negative. They're trying to distract, 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 distract. Thing is, is that either through venality or incompetence, he's been seen again to have allowed things to happen that shouldn't have happened. It's the end of the road for him, really. No wonder they're desperate to win the, the referendum. Although, as we've pointed out that's not actually going to save him at all. 
Oh, once again, I think it is this lack of attention to detail or just lack of attention. And this is symptomatic of the Liberal National Coalition during their time in government between 2013 and 2022. And it's actually their general approach to all of government. Do nothing, let the market try and sort it out and keep the Labor Party out of office. Pretty much their primary intention. But it's no surprise that all of this has happened. Compliance staff were cut from 380 in 2013 down to 200 in 2022. And the government will boost that by 43% and spend an extra $50 million on compliance measures and a further $28 million on biometric testing. But slowly... I think we're finding out what the previous government didn't do and what needs to be done to fix up all the problems. And I feel that this is the narrative that the federal government is going to keep pushing. Here's the Minister of Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill. Well, it deteriorated to this point after 10 years of utter neglect of the system by the former government. We see um, vast incompetencies in the way that this system has been run. It has been starved of resources by Peter Dutton, who was presiding over this system for a long period of time. Uh, it just hasn't had the sufficient, the sufficient focus, energy and attention on the migration system that's absolutely required. This has facilitated um, widespread abuse of the system, exploitation of migrants who come to Australia under it. And at its pointiest end, we've got a situation here where criminal gangs from around the world are actually looking looking to Australia and seeing facilitated abuse through the migration system as a great benefit of coming to operate here. So we've got a real mess to fix up. And can I just say, you know, I'm talking to you today about uh, egregious problems in our migration system. If you had Jason Clare, our education minister, on tonight, he'd be telling you a similar story of incompetence in the education system. You'd hear it from Mark Butler in the health system. You'd hear it from all of our ministers who are grappling with messes left to us by the incompetent former government. We can't fix every single problem that they created overnight. We've got a report from a highly reputable person here who tells us that Peter Dutton presided over the breaking of our migration system. That's the bottom line. What I'd like to see from Peter Dutton today is, frankly, a bit of contrition and a bit of taking responsibility. People have been really hurt by his failures to regulate our borders. We're talking about literally rings of women that were caught in sexual slavery in our country and an individual who should have been captured and deported long before he was uh, recently by our government. So I'd say there's real questions to answer here and if you can't be a good immigration minister I don't know why you think you can be prime minister and here's Peter Dutton's response I'll say about Claire O'Neill uh, I mean she's a very angry person uh, always very angry and very aggressive and uh, the negativity coming out of uh, Claire O'Neill today and and the overstated position that she's taken uh, frankly is uh, all about trying to provide cover uh, for a bad prime minister Why did they lose control of our borders when they were in government? Why have they allowed 105,000 asylum seekers into our country over the last 15 months? Peter Dutton is in a corner here, so he's used the angry woman trope. Not sure how well that will play out in the electorate, but he certainly would have lost quite a few votes there. And then told a few absolute lies about asylum seekers where he claimed that Labor has lost control of the borders and let in 105,000 asylum seekers. Now, since May 2022, the Albanese government has approved 10,000 asylum seeker applications. And during the time Peter Dutton was in government as Home Affairs and Immigration Minister, 95,000 asylum seekers were approved. So... We can see what Dutton does when he gets caught out. He attacks people, he calls women angry, and then he tells absolute lies, and he just knows that no one is really going to call him out on this. And on that number, journalists don't really need to know the figure. When I heard that figure, I thought, wow, that's a really high number. That can't be right. And all they need to do at these media conferences is ask, well, hang on, where did that number come from? And they can go and check it later on, which is what I did. And if it's wrong, which it was... The headline should be Dutton tells lies on asylum seeker numbers, not Dutton claims Labor loses control of the borders, which is what the narrative then became in the media. Now, David Crow from the Sydney Morning Herald, he called out this line, and he's the only one that I've been able to find within the mainstream media that's called this out. But it does get back to what we were saying before. Just because a political leader has words coming out of their mouths, it doesn't have to be reported, and it is okay to call out their lies.
Yes, in fact, that's the job. If a politician does something good, great, say it. If they do something bad, great, say it. It shouldn't really go down to parties, shouldn't go down to even your political preferences. It should go down to what is the right thing. Dutton's been caught out again and should be called out. I suspect the media will try and blow this over, but I also suspect there's going to be court cases and other repercussions down the track. And again, kicking into vulnerable, fragile, innocent people who have had the most awful experiences through no fault of their own can't be good politics. So these short-term solutions, which might win over a few far-right groups, but essentially horrify most of the Australian public, including Liberal Party voters and National Party voters. I don't think that anyone with any sense of empathy thinks that this is at all acceptable behaviour. In the less short to medium term, it will come back and bite you and bite you badly. And we're starting to see this happening again. So we can see what Peter Dutton is doing and his strategies and his tactics, but we can also see what the government is doing here as well. And this is an announcement ostensibly on the problems in the temporary visa system, but I think that it's also the commencement of the next election campaign. And we do say that the midterm of the electoral cycle is when the government starts preparing for the next election. And I think this is what's happening right now. And it is a slow burning message about the general incompetence of Peter Dutton and of the Liberal Party. The electorate might not care too much about incompetence in the management of the temporary visa system. But if they are reminded about this incompetence in a wide range of other areas, and and we can see that the Minister for Home Affairs is trying to have it both ways. She's trying to score a political points against the Liberal Party, but also pushing the message that she'll take on the responsibility for fixing up the mess. And that's an easy message that can be applied to virtually everything, education, the economy, health, aged care. This idea that Peter Dutton was just so incompetent, we had to spend all of this time cleaning up the mess. Why on earth would you want this guy to ever come back into office to create more damage? And I think that they will keep pushing this message and ramp it up after the referendum on October the 14th. And my feeling is that the federal government is expecting to lose the referendum question next week. And it's not a political event that will see a change of government or even dent the chances of the government at the next federal election. Many governments that have sponsored a referendum and lost that referendum have gone on to win the next federal election. Of the 36 referendum questions that have been lost, only three governments have failed to win the next election, and the last one was the Labor government in 1975. These are completely separate political events that don't have actually any relationship to each other. But I expect that this is the start of the political attack on the leadership incompetence of Peter Dutton, not so much his character, because I think that's already been worked out. It's partially the nature of politics and the political process. The Liberal Party do it all the time on Labor Party leaders, so why not? But I think it's also going to be payback for Peter Dutton being so divisive on the voice to Parliament, and I suspect the government is going to do their best to crucify his leadership. They've pretty much been the nice guy to Peter Dutton ever since he became leader of the opposition, but I've got a feeling that that's all just about to change. He is the one who Anthony Albanese said, sit down, boofhead to. And then we haven't seen a lot of that fire. But I think you're right. I think they're trying to remain civil and take the high road for the referendum. And I wonder if the gloves go off, the boots come on, the knuckle dusters go on and they, they go to town on him. Given his fairly thin skin and his lack of imagination, it shouldn't be too hard to start to score some real political points on him. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.